We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Jesus saves the lost. Does that mean there are those he won't save? Let's talk about that next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Jesus saves the lost. That's the title of our message today, taken from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. Now, as we say, Jesus saves the lost, quickly we think of those who he won't save. And there is good reason behind that. Before you go thinking this is heresy, bear with us and join us here in Luke 15 as we take a look at this massive statement, Jesus saves the lost. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. This very famous parable has been called the gospel within the gospel. And it's because of its graphic portrayal of gospel truths. It is closely linked with the two previous parables in that its emphasis falls on the seeking and the saving love of God as well as on the necessity of repentance and returning back to where you belong. In this parable, each member of Jesus' audience could surely see himself. Every person present was forced by the mirror of this little parable to see himself as he truly was. The prodigal son portrayed the moral and the social outcasts, the untouchables. The older son portrayed the self-righteous Jewish leaders. They couldn't help but see themselves in this parable. But who was the father? Well, he is obviously God the father. And the, folk, the parable focused on his love for his children, even when they were wayward. He loved both of his sons dearly. And his love never changed. Although his son strayed from home, the father continued to love him. Let me read two or three quotes from Pastor Herman Hankel about the love that God portrayed in this parable. He said, this is the picture of the unchanged love of God. God's love is eternal. It is love that is from eternity to eternity the same It is a love that is rooted in God's own being. It is not a love that is dependent on the people whom God loves, for then it would change as they change. But God loves himself. He loves his own purpose and work. He loves his own name and the cause which he determined in his counsel to realize. And his love for his people is rooted in himself and in his own unchangeable purpose to save his people. It is a love that is toward his people even when they are still sinners. And that's a very important thing to bear in mind. Jesus did not die on the cross to win God's love for us. 
Jesus did not die on the cross to make it possible for God to love us. God determined his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This was not to secure God's love. The death of Christ was because God had always loved those for whom he had sent his son to die. It is a love that is absolutely first for this love. For this is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. It is a love that is not affected or altered by the sins we commit. We have sung the hymn that says, Though we oft have sinned against him, still his love and grace abide. It is because of this love that we remain sons. God has made us sons eternally. He chose us to be his sons before we were born or saw the light of day. He adopted us as sons in his eternal love for us. When we disown our father and choose rather the pleasures of sin, still he remains our father. Though we deny our sonship and scorn his fatherhood, he maintains his promise faithfully and he remains our father through it all. Pastor Hanko says, But God's law is not only unchangeable, it is absolutely sovereign. Though the proud heresies of Arminian and Pelagius maintain that we turn to God of our own free will and initiate the beginnings of our restoration, that is a lie. It is the love of the Father which follows His Son to the distant land. It is the love of God which follows us wherever we wander. First, God's love brings trouble on us. The heavy hand of chastisement comes upon us. And by this we see the utter hopelessness of sin's folly and the inability of the pleasures of life to bring us satisfaction and contentment. Sometimes we are to the lowest extremity of need when our condition becomes hopeless and filled with despair. But it is always the hand of God's love. For God moves every son whom he loves, every son whom he chastens. His love follows us down the dark paths of sin. His love is revealed in difficult trials and with the purpose of bringing us back. When by these chastisements we have seen the hopelessness of our life without our Father, our thoughts are brought back again to our Father's house in this way. The love of God beckons us again to the joys of our Father's house. When we leave it in the futile and empty pursuit of pleasure, it seems drab and monotonous. But in the despairing miseries and hopelessness of sin, God's love reminds us of the blessings which we receive in His house. There in the house of God is God's comforting word. The word of our Father to speak to us in our need. There is true happiness and joy in the fellowship of the saints. In that house is peace and safety. True friends are to be found. True joy. True satisfaction for every want. It is the love of God that draws us to our home. Unquote. And this parable is about God the Father's unchangeable love and unmerited grace for those who belong to him. Then we come to the younger son that ran off. And any Jew of the first century that knew his Bible knew that God had a wayward son. 
Jeremiah 31, 18 and 19, quote, Ephraim, which is the name for Israel, if you remember. And he says, restore me and I will return because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. So the the younger son was the moral outcast of that day, the lost of Israel, who recognized their lostness, repented, and came home to the father. Now notice how lost this young man was. The young man wants his inheritance immediately, which was actually perfectly legal in that day. And it amounted to one-third of his father's wealth. He wanted his inheritance, though, so he could spend it in the satisfaction of his own wicked desires and the pursuit of his own goals and sinful pleasures. So he breaks away from his father, and he goes to a distant land to get as far away as possible from the eye of his father so that he could sin all he wanted without restraint, guilt, or consequences. And as a result, he wasted all he had, including himself, in riotous living. And he exchanged the freedom that consisted in obedience to his father in his father's house for the slavery of sinful rebellion. One commentator said, Thus the life of sin and error is in its deepest and innermost nature, the rebellious breaking away of man's life from God. Under a deceptive yearning for so-called freedom, such a person enters the distant country of sin, there to waste in selfishness and dissipation the precious gifts which he had received from God. All of those Things which a man wastes and destroys. When he lives in sin, he is received from God as gifts wherewith to glorify God and to experience real happiness in life. So after he left home to a distant land, then his troubles really started. First he lost his money. Then his friends left him. And then he was bloated with lust and pleasure. What once attracted him no longer attracted him. He had drunk the cup of pleasure to the full, and the life of rejoicing and pleasure that he sought had turned ashes in his mouth. Nothing, nothing satisfied him. And if that wasn't enough, God loved him so much that he sent a famine to starve him to the verge of death. And then came the final degradation. He was hungry. He didn't have any money, so he found a job feeding pigs. Now, for a Jew to feed pigs, you really had to reach a very low point. They believed anything to do with pigs rendered you unclean. It would separate you from Jehovah. It was a sin to have anything to do with pigs in first century Israel. And then the famine worsened. So he had to get down and eat pig slop in the trough that the pigs were eating. And then there was not even enough for the pigs and himself. So he could not escape that gnawing pain of hunger and sorrow. It would not go away. And then by God's grace, the young man began to think about home compared to the condition 
he was in it present. And the Bible says brilliantly, he came to his senses. He recognized his true condition and his guilt. He repented of his sins and was, re- was, was determined to return home to his father to confess his sins and to find restoration as a mere slave in his father's house. The first step toward true repentance then is that a man should become conscious of the misery into which he has fallen. And to notice this remorse did not turn to despondency in this man. It also had faith with it. Because he had faith that his father would not reject him when he came into the door of the house. So it is clear that this man had come to true repentance and the realization of his guilt. And above all, he bewails his deep guilt and desires to utter no other words but those of unconditional confession of sin. He writes out a little speech so he doesn't forget it. And he admits that he has sinned against God and sinned against his father. He's not worthy to be a son of his father. Whereas he formerly and self-sufficiently demanded all of his inheritance, now he is living in humility. He is quite willing to take the lowest position just to be in his father's house. And we learn here that real remorse... An unconditional confession of sin are the indispensable requirement of true repentance. Then the young man comes home, and what he receives from his father he could never have imagined. For you see, his father had never stopped loving him. He never stopped watching for him. In fact, when he saw him coming from afar off, he immediately, driven by love for this son, ran to meet him, embraced him, and kissed him. The young son is profoundly touched, and he begins to recite his thought-out confession. But his father does not let him complete that confession, for the forgiveness of the father was immediate. He receives the son back as his son immediately and not as a slave. He commands the servants, go get a robe, go get a ring, go get sandals for his feet. I am fully accepting my son back as my son, and I am restoring him to a place of honor in this household. And then he orders the killing of a fatted calf to have a joyful banquet, a time of celebration, because his son, who was practically dead and lost to his father, had come home and had come back to life. Everyone rejoiced, but one person. This is the way God receives every lost sinner who repents and returns to him. He receives him freely. He receives him without reproach. The young man comes and the father hugs him and kisses him. He has a confession. But his father doesn't jump all over him and question him about all of that squandered money. He doesn't say, what did you do with all that money? That was a sinful thing, wasting all of my money. That was dishonoring to me. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't even let him finish his speech. That's the way God receives repentant sinners. Now, who is this older son? Well, if you were there that day and you heard this parable and you were a Pharisee, you would know good and well what Jesus was getting at here. 
For you see, the Jewish leaders of that day saw no need for repentance. They couldn't understand why this father was so joyful. They were just like the older son. He couldn't understand why the father was so joyful about the homecoming of this good-for-nothing, rebellious, unclean son. The older son failed to notice that the father went out to entreat him to come in as he welcomed the younger son. And this shows, beloved, that the father wasn't biased. He had no favorites. He treated both of his sons with the same tenderness and affection. But the older son complains that his father never threw a party for him, although he stayed home and he worked for his father all along. One commentator says, The sin of the older brother was the sin of criticizing his father's love. He resented the fact that his father loved his younger brother when that brother had wandered in the ways of sin. And this criticism of his father's love was rooted in an inability on his part to love either his father or his brother. He hated his brother and was sorry that his brother had returned and he hated his father for loving his brother. He said to his father, I've worked for you. I've done everything you have told me to do. I've taken pains to obey all of your commands. It appears as if he was very proud of his diligent labor and of a service to his father and that he felt he had a right to his father's approval. And that is a typical picture of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. You see, the self-righteous older son didn't understand the true meaning of being a son. And as a result, he failed to understand what it means to say that God is a father. The older son did not understand the significance of being a son is to be always in the presence of your father as his beloved son and heir. That is what a Christian is to be. That is what sonship in the family of God means, which is to be always in the presence of your father as his beloved son and heir. And fathers, that's what it means to be a human father. Your son may wander in a distant land and misunderstand sonship if he does not learn to enjoy living in your presence as your son and heir. Now, And for him to live in your presence, you have to be there to love him and be involved in his life. With the return of the younger son and the father's joy at his return, the older son spoke to his father in words that were sharp and bitter. He refused to call his father father. He refused to call his brother brother. And notice in verses 29 and 30, he says with contempt, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who had devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And listen to what one commentator said. With those words, the older son grieved his father just as much as the prodigal son had done by his wild living. The older brother separated himself just as far from the father as the younger son had done. The one had come home. The father pleaded with the other to do likewise. 
Both the elder and the younger sons were sons of the father, and the father had addressed the elder as tenderly as he addressed the younger son. He said in verses 31 and 32, My child, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Well, that's the end of the story. Jesus doesn't tell you what happened next. Did the older son start celebrating? You're right, Father. I'm such a miserable sinner. You're right. I've had such a high view of myself. I repent. Let's go celebrate my younger brother's coming home. Nor did the older brother say, forget it, Dad, forget it, you hypocrite. I didn't want any of your favoritism. You see, we don't know what happened. But that was a brilliant way to finish this story. For you see, the door is still open for those who are Pharisees. If Jesus had said that the older son turned around and walked away, he would shut the door of salvation right in the Pharisee's face. But he kept it open. But keep in mind, self-righteousness and pride in self and in our accomplishments go hand in hand. And in a heart filled with pride, there is no room for the love of God. When pride conquers us, we begin to believe that we can earn God's favor and make God obligated to bless us. As Herman Hanko said, all of this is true because pride blinds one to the cross, unquote. The Pharisees saw no need for the cross. They were without sin in their own eyes. They needed no suffering Savior to atone for their sins, for they had no sins which needed atoning for. And they could not understand the love of God in Christ for publicans and sinners for whom Christ shed his own blood. They hated God's love in Christ for sinners because they hated the cross, which is the highest manifestation of God's love. Always pride closes one's eyes to the cross. And unable to see the cross, one becomes unable to see God's love in Christ through the cross for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Let me ask you one question, and then we are finished. Where is Jesus in this parable? We've got a loving father. We've got a rebellious son who comes and a father sitting on the porch waiting for him. Where does Jesus fit in? Is this parable about the mercy of God with, without Jesus? Is this parable about Christianity without Christ? The only way to answer that question is to see the parable in light of its context, which is the entire Bible. The Bible, since the fall of man into sin, to the consummation of the second coming of Christ, is a running commentary on the parable of the prodigal sons. Where is Jesus? It is Jesus who's telling the story. It is Jesus who will later open the way to the Father's house by his own sacrifice. It is Jesus who invites undeserving sinners to come home. And it is Jesus who sends his Spirit to enable us to come. And what is the gospel in this parable? Simply and profoundly this. 
everyone who has turned, turned to his own way or has turned her back on God in order to live their life without God will, when he repents, find a loving father with outstretched arms waiting for his return to him. There is always a welcoming homecoming for all who repent and turn back to God. And do you know why? Because God is our home. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402, and the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us. 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408-866-5607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner.